every moment of your life, you're at a point of decision, the crossroads of personal choice. You may be asking, which way should I go? What should I buy or sell? Should I take that job I've been offered and remain where I am? Should I take the road less traveled or follow the multitudes in what is being done? I always find it shocking to hear true students of truth fatalistically say, que sera, sera, what will be, will be. The person may even be under the illusion that it is a positive attitude. These people may not realize that they, have always, they always have a choice in terms of how they think. Life for such folks could best be described as drifting with the tide. We're going to use as a metaphor today a rowboat drifting in the bay. Some of you may reflect sometime in your life when you've been on a rowboat rowing around. You know what it is to drift in the tide. I was thinking this morning of an experience I had many years ago when I was a youngster. My family used to take a beach house at a point called Anaheim Landing in California, which was an inlet from the ocean, forming a kind of a bay where we had all sorts of recreational activities. And going to the upper end of the bay, the inlet went several miles inland to tide flats. We had a little experience that we did from time to time. We go clam digging. We always go in the right time when the tide was coming in, so then you wouldn't have to row very hard. We weren't very rich, so we didn't have a motorboat. So we'd row up several miles inland with the tide, and we'd spend several hours digging for clams. Just at the right time, we'd start back when the tide changed. We'd have the tide with us going out. Rowing with the tide made the journey easy both ways, drifting with the tide. Why don't you kind of think of this metaphor and hold it in mind as we go along, we'll refer to it from time to time today. One of the first steps we're challenged to take in the study of truth is to take charge of your life, own your own thoughts. It could be said that the greatest neglect in modern education is instruction in the art of thinking. The whole thought process is simply taken for granted. We're told what to think, and a lot of that, but rarely are we told how to think. The mind is dealt with, for the most part, as a fact collector and a word dispenser. Thought for the average person is a reflex process. Things happen and we react to them in thought. We become worried or fearful or sorry or happy. We assume that thought is produced by circumstances, that the mind is simply something you have in your skull by which you can deal with the world out there. So life for most of us becomes a continuous reaction to outside stimuli. We're happy or sad, or life has meaning or is meaningless by evidence of what happens to us from day to day. We may even check the weather report or consult with the market returns, even if we see our doctor to get the cue for our level of thought. You ask someone, how do you feel? They say, well, I'll tell you better when I go see what mood the boss is in. So we reflect the idea that our thoughts are the result of things that happen. But you see, experiences do not cause thoughts. An incident happens, there's no denying it, it is history. But as far as your experience is concerned, the incident is completely external. 
Your mind is your domain. You think what you want to think, or what you have habitually thought. Your thoughts are your reaction to the incident. The incident did not make the thought. It's your mind. So the first step in learning how to think is to know that no matter what happens in your world, you're not a victim of circumstances. You always have a choice. You don't have to be angry or disturbed or upset or fearful. You can choose to think positively and creatively. You can become the master instead of a slave. Well, granted, it's not all that easy to make the change from reflex thinking to creative thinking. It's not that easy to think happiness when you're unhappy. Simply because your unhappiness is busy manufacturing more unhappy thoughts. As Tagore wisely observes, a slave is busy making whips for his master. He said, as a man thinketh, so is he. We usually find ourselves moving in the direction of the thing we think most about. In other words, it could be said that a person is what he thinks about all day long. What are you thinking about? Where's your life moving? With many persons, there's a kind of laziness in thinking. You know you think, but you may resist the idea of controlling your thought. Perhaps you've come to accept the fact that thought is just a reactive process. You think about things, but you may have no sense of responsibility for the thought. Do it simply a reflex. Matter of fact, some people are angered when you tell them that they can control their thoughts. They don't want to be told that. It's much easier to rationalize the fact that I'm feeling sad because of what he did or what she said or what happened there. So in a sense, the human race has proved to be a race of lazy thinkers. It's much easier to let someone else do our thinking for us. And many persons do just this. Perhaps we all do to a certain degree. The true progress of the race has almost invariably come through a few great thinkers who have occasionally appeared on the scene. These people have led the race to new ideals and better modes of living. And the majority of people have been perfectly willing to tread along behind, accepting the benefits and the effects and the influence of the creative thinkers. And the problem is with, with lazy thinking is what I call drifting. In the book of Hebrews we read, Therefore, we ought to give more earnest heed to the things that were heard, lest we drift away from them. When the mind is not alert, creative, positive, working toward a definite end, we find ourselves drifting, drifting in the tide of human events, of generally accepted concepts, what Charles Fillmore calls the race beliefs. In this sense, most of us deal in second-hand thinking. The great thinkers, the philosophers, the leaders may set forth a wave of powerful creative ideas. For a while we may joyously float along on their influence. But unless we're focused and disciplined all the time, and who is, we tend in time to drift away. I like the wisdom of Shakespeare spoken through Julius Caesar when he says, There's a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads unto fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and miseries. How much of our life is bound in shallows and miseries simply because we've drifted along on the tide of negativity. As the song says, drifting along like a tumbling tumbleweed. How many of us drift along through the tide of life, hoping for better things, but never doing much about getting them, not believing that we can do much about it, thinking that things are as they are and what are you going to do? It's, there's nothing you can do about it. The current of negative thinking 
fixed beliefs about life and its possibilities. It's sometimes overwhelming. In order to accomplish anything in life, we have to pull ceaselessly against the tide. The tide of public opinion. The tide of achievement barriers. How subtle is the drift of the tide? We, easy it is to accept as inevitable the drift into age and deterioration. Drift into physical conditions that come along with certain stages of life. How easy it is to drift along with beliefs concerning world conditions, about economic upheavals, recessions, depressions, unemployment. We're not always aware of the fact that we're drifting, but how easy it happens as race consciousness becomes a current and we move along with it. I'm convinced that drifting is one of the major problems that we have to face in life. Sometimes the tide seems so strong. Although we may row against it with all our might for a while, the slightest letdown, simply pausing to catch your breath, you slip backward. You find yourself going backward 20 yards and going forward 10 yards. If you're not alert, keep constantly pulling against the tide. Albert Einstein illustrates the most serious implication of the drift when he said, in the early days of atomic experimentation, and we quote, the unleashed power of the atom has changed everything save our modes of thinking, and we thus drift toward unparalleled catastrophe. That's a negative, of course. It is our sincere prayer that the great opening up of healthy East and West relations is a strong anchorage that will offset this drift. There are two things you can do to prevent a boat from drifting with the tide. I'm sure you're aware of them. One is to anchor the boat or tie it to the dock. Secondly, you can pull sturdily on the oars. Often we drift because we do not row. We do not row because we've never really determined where we're going. We're aimless. We just take things as they come, hoping that, as Dickens' character puts it, waiting for something to turn up. Just taking things as they come, drifting along. Some people think of this as non-resistance, having faith that God will work things out. Having faith that God will work things out is not drifting with the tide of human consciousness. It's getting into the stream, the divine process, the eternal energy, and flowing with the stream, and pulling on the oars, and directing the, the course in which you've taken. And there was an experience that a man had a few years ago that brought this whole thing into focus. He was scheduled for a lecture in a strange town. The train was late. He jumped from the train into a taxi and said to the driver, please drive as fast as you can, I'm terribly late. The driver raced off at a breakneck speed. After a few minutes, the man said to the driver, aren't we about there? The driver said, I don't know, sir, you never told me where you wanted to go. How often we leave hurried, harried lives, racing here and there, never stopping to ask ourselves where we are, where we really want to go. I'm late, I'm late, rush, rush, rush. And we plug into the spiritual power and guidance to lead us forward, wondering why it doesn't work for us instantly. Emerson Fos uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick preached a sermon on the theme, I'm taking the wrong bus. He told the story of a man who boarded a bus with the intention of going to Kansas City. At the end of a long trip, he alighted at the destination and found that he was not in Kansas City at all, but he was in Atlanta, Georgia. He'd caught the wrong bus. 
points out that something like this goes on constantly in human life. People who want good things, who want happiness, want a good family life, want success in their work, respect to their associates, but because they do not take charge of their lives by disciplining their thoughts, they experience the subtle drift of the tide and often find themselves somewhere else entirely. Think of taking the bus. It's time for the Allentown retreat. A number of people take the charter bus that takes them out there. They board the bus here and ride comfortably to Allentown, distance about 100 miles, and then they alight on the campus of Cedarcrest College. As they get off the bus and get their baggage off the bus, everyone's happy, expectant, enthusiastic. This one time, everyone was off the bus and they saw there was a woman still on the bus. So one of our leaders went out and asked her, was she coming to the retreat? She said, no. Why are we on the bus? I saw all those happy people getting on the bus in town. <laughs> I thought I wanted to be happy too, so I went with them. She took the wrong bus too, but this case by choice. In her simple way, she was doing something positive about her experience. Kind of self-deluding, but probably better than staying in her despondent state in the city. You'll note that the prodigal son did not start out with the intent of going to the swine pasture. He took his inheritance and set forth into the far country on the quest for freedom and adventure. As time passed, he drifted away from his lofty goal and came to no want. But he still had a choice. That's the important part of the story. He still had a choice. He said, I will arise and go unto the Father. He didn't remain in despondency and despair. His lot of feeding pigs. He took charge of his mind. He went home. He was received royally in the Father's house. That's the important part. We drift away get involved in all sorts of self-limiting things. How important it is that we can come to ourselves, see where we are, see what we've been doing and have not been doing, straighten out our little boat, get it in the right direction, and start pulling on your oars. A person who falls into the clutches of alcoholism or drug addiction certainly isn't begging to be enslaved. Yet in a way, he's creating the conditions that make the result inevitable. So though he would never have set out for the dreadful place he lands in, it was made inevitable because it is the bus he boarded. It's the way of life that he got involved in. But again, like the prodigal, he can come to himself. He can change. He can be healed. That's a message that we want to hold in our hearts and express in our voice to persons everywhere. You don't have to stay this way. You can wake up. You can come to yourself. You can rise and go to your father. You can be healed. In most persons' cases, when a person has pulled steadily on his oars for an extended period of time, and in discouragement has resigned himself to the relentless pull of the tide, he's been rowing without any clear-cut goal. How many people, especially the young, talk about getting somewhere in life? I want to get somewhere. I want to be someone. I want to be successful. Rarely have they asked themselves, in what field? Doing what? There may be no clear-cut goal or objective in interest, in, in interest in life except being successful, whatever that means. That person may think he's working towards success. He's probably drifting with the tide of human experiences. He comes to no want in terms of great despair and disillusionment. When we get a clear vision of where we're going, 
Finally, we can move with the tide. Perhaps we discover a new dimension in the boat, in the development of the sails. But with the sails on a boat, you have another dimension, a tide that blows with the wind. Helps you to realize something very exciting. You don't have to go where the wind blows. You can tack into the teeth of the wind and go the way you want to go regardless of the tide. Ella Wheeler Wilcox once caught this vision as she watched the sailing ships move sleekly up and down the river here in New York Harbor. She expresses this thought in poetry. She says, one ship goes east, another goes west, by the selfsame winds that blow. It is the set of the sails, not the gales, which determine the way they go. We could say, if we want to be facetious, to get the drift. <laughs> the mind is like the ocean, ceaselessly moving, ebbing, flowing, drifting. When we talk of controlling the mind, we don't mean control in an absolute sense, but in a regulatory sense. You might as well face it, you can't control the mind. You can't turn it off or stop it altogether. There are times when we wish we could. Or to be delivered from the ceaseless flow of thoughts and images that sometimes oppress the mind. Even in sleep, there's no cessation of this drift of the tide. It continues at a subconscious level in dreams. Many centuries ago, Oriental thinkers recognized that the mind is in constant motion like the ocean. It is next to impossible to stop it altogether. They compared the mind to a jumping monkey. They said that the first step in getting control of the jumping monkey is to let it jump. In other words, it's a realization that many folks have come to that has been a great revelation. If you want to control the mind in any way, become an observer. Just stand back and watch what happens. Watch the jumping monkey. Watch the turn of thoughts influence of attitudes and so forth. Let's watch them move. You'll observe that it is not you, that you are not the mind. But you stand behind it and use it as an instrument. And this realization is firmly in consciousness on the very verge of self-mastery. A young man went to a sage for instruction. He said, Master, I have a terrible temper. Can you cure me of it? The master said, Well, show me this temper. The young man said, I can't show it to you, it comes and goes. So the sage said, there is no part of you. This realization will enable the young man, if he's open and sincere, to stand back and see the problem objectively. He always has the choice to say no. There may be situations out here that would normally anger you if you're angerable. Things can upset you if you're upsetable if you're disturbable. But you always have the capacity to say, no, I don't have to be that way. I don't have to react in that sense. I can say no. I can refuse to accept this condition that seems to cause temper. I can choose to be poisoned, non-resistant. Tremendous realization when we get that. We don't have to drift with the tide of human consciousness. We can stand steadfast, tack into the teeth of the gale with our sails, go steadily with our oars, and give ourselves direction in where we want to go. There's an old Tamil tale that tells of a wandering fakir who came to a certain village and announced that he had discovered a wonderful secret. He knew how to make gold. The people's eyes opened wide because they were a poor people. He said, you just put certain ingredients into a pot and I'll tell you what the ingredients are. You stir them well till the gold appears. First, everyone in the village must pay a fee. They were all eager for riches, so they all paid the fee. He said, if they followed his instructions, 
could guarantee that they would receive gold. When the fees were paid, the head man of the village was designated to stir the pot. Just as the man was to begin, the fakir said, oh yes, one more thing. While you're stirring, you must on no account think of a red-faced monkey. Or the formula can't work. So while the villagers watched their head man stir the pot, the fakir left with his bag of fees. Of course, the man could think of nothing else than red-faced monkeys. That's the way of human consciousness. And the scam always worked because of the drifting tendency of the mind, in this case, spurred on by greed. It's a parable that we could well remember. It has much relevance to our lives. And we come to the matter of anchoring. The only true and sure anchor protection is spiritual depth. Establishing yourself, establishing yourself in the consciousness of the greatness of God. I'm reminded of the story of Sidney Lanier, the beloved poet, who at age 38 went up into the Carolina mountains for some relief from his consumption. They called it, in those days, later called tuberculosis. He was incurably ill. After slowly sinking lower, watching his life ever away, he grasped for something firm to hold on to. Suddenly, just before he died, he saw the truth. He wrote the immortal poem, The Marches of Glen. You can imagine the thoughts must have been going through his mind. There he lay dying, racked by the tortures of his laboring lungs, wrung even more cruelly by the worries that he'd never been able to conquer, longing for some strong mooring of the soul. He probably thought it was too late. He lay there defeated, staring out upon the marshes that he'd loved and yet somehow dreaded. Those dim, lonely marshes of Glen, endlessly stretching, endlessly quaking under the tug of the tide. So like a man's life, he thought. Need a man's life be like that? Might there not be something on which a man could depend, could build, as the marsh hen builds their nest on that seemingly unanchorable sod? Suddenly, across the tide, the answer came. He saw the truth. He wrote these lines, which will forever stand like some strong, outthrust hand to those caught in the slimy bogs of fear. I'll read just the first stanza. As the marsh hen secretly builds on the watery sod, behold, I will build me a nest on the greatness of God. I will fly on the greatness of God as the marsh hen flies, in the freedom that fills all the space which the marsh and the skies. By so many roots as the marsh grass sends in the sod, I will hardly lay me a hold on the greatness of God. The wonderful thing is that this kind of anchoring is an inner mooring. It's not an outer thing at all. It doesn't tie you down. You're not tied to a dock. You're not anchored with a metal anchor in the mud. You can be anchored within and still be rowing, rowing towards your goal, but secured with your inner sense of oneness, inner sense of direction. And of course, the drift is good in this consciousness. You find that the effort is without strain. Your yoke is easy, your burden is light, said Jesus. You begin to find that all things work together for good. You're lifted to a higher sense of the drift of the tide, a divine action that moves us relentlessly toward our highest good. You're anchored within as the marsh hen secretly builds on the watery sod. You build your nest on the greatness of God. If I were to ask each of you, where are you going? Could you tell me in so many words? You're charting a course and moving forward to the fulfillment of some definite desire? Or are you drifting with the tide, simply making the best of conditions as they come, thinking that this is the positive way of life? Just accept everything that comes and say, well, it's all right. It's all right. All things work together for good. And you drift along in the human consciousness.
Are you poised in the Christ mind or are you the jumping monkeys in control? It's good to take a look at yourself from time to time. Get an evaluation. Make sure that you're in control, that you're setting the sails, tacking into the teeth of the gale, rowing firmly against the tide. Whenever you find yourself drifting in thought, into fear, into worry and anxiety, into acceptance of negative eventualities, you always know this. Usually we think there's nothing to do about it. I'm getting angry. I'm becoming fearful. You see the drift already taking place. It's important to take a look at yourself objectively, see what's happening. You're letting the mind control you. The jumping monkey is, has you in control. You're not making the progress in life that you feel you should be making. It's because something in consciousness you're not doing. You can stop the drift by realizing your oneness with God, realizing the inner mooring, knowing that you're one with this divine activity, that your mind is your mind, your mind. You can think your thoughts. You don't have to react to the thoughts of others. So get out of the second-hand thought business. Begin to think original thoughts, creative thoughts. Begin on your own. Advance confidently in the direction of that which you desire. You'll eventually find the turn of the tide. And you can go with the tide and go easily. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Your mind will begin to work for you instead of against you. You will move easily and relentlessly in the direction of your dreams. Join me a moment and sell this. Let's take this metaphor of the rowboat. See ourselves in our own little boat. First of all, ask ourselves, where do I want to go? Not how much is there a tide or what, what's, what's against me, how things are going to be difficult. Forget that. Where do you want to go? What are the desires and ideals of your heart? Take a moment to become anchored within, to get the sense of oneness with God, in tune with the divine flow, the guidance that is ever with you. Set your goal before you, going up to the tide flats, as I mentioned, to be clam digging, or going to a new field of success and accomplishment, moving toward an experience of healing and overcoming, a desire to find happiness and harmony in your home, a desire to be a positive influence in the community. This is your goal. Set your sails. Take your rows firmly, arms firmly in hand and move directly in the direction of your dreams. When you know the truth, when you're wisely alert to the inner influences, to the visions that you hold so strongly in consciousness, the interesting thing is the tide is always in your favor. You always go with the tide. But only when you've, first of all, found yourself one with God, in tune with the divine flow. Following this simple formula, we commit you to go forth and experience a whole new demonstration of the drift of the tide, which will lead on to success and fulfillment, to healing, to overcoming, to peace.
and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So be it.